Revelation chapter 15, the book of Revelation chapter 15, and if you're with us for the first time today, we are currently going through the book of Revelation. But chapter 15, and uh, it really speaks about the end being near. God is about to pass out or again... uh, give his last final judgments upon a Christ-rejecting earth. Chapter 15 here is kind of a a break in the action, if you will. It's really an introduction to chapter 16. And what it does, it sets the scene for the judgments that come out in chapter 16 that brings us to the final judgment of God on the earth before Jesus returns. There's one special feature of the book of Revelation that sometimes makes it hard to understand or follow, and that is the related events don't always follow a sequential order. And many times John describes the overall picture, and then he'll go back and fill in the details, and then he'll add more details to some of the earlier things that he said. And that's what happens now here with chapters 15 and 16. These are, you could call them fill-in chapters that add more details to events that have already happened. In chapter 10, in chapter 10, we come now to the second, uh, or I'm sorry, in chapter 10, we came to the second coming of Christ. We also read about it in chapter 14, the things happening in chapters 15 and 16 will be taking place before the Lord's second coming. Now, these are the details about God's judgments to be poured out on this earth very soon because of man's rejection of his love and grace before Jesus comes again to reign. Chapter 15 shows us what's happening in heaven, while chapter 16 describes the related events taking place on the earth during the Great Tribulation period. The church will be in heaven with Jesus at this time. Chapters 15 and 16 belong together because in these two chapters, we have the pouring out of the seven bold judgments. Now, at this point, the devastation that's already taken place so far on the earth is beyond imagination. The earth has been destroyed. Uh, Much of it has been destroyed. Uh, The water system polluted. Uh, There's been earthquakes. People have died. Again, the the water system's polluted and and the earth has been just, you know, devastated by some of the, the earlier judgments that God has released. But it, as bad shape as it's in at this point, the worst is still to come. We've already <clears throat> seen the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven key figures involved. Now, the coming seven bowls of wrath are the worst of them all. Chapter 15 is the shortest chapter in Revelation. And it introduces to us the final set of judgments that are going to come on the earth during the Great Tribulation period. These judgments are the most severe and they're the most destructive of all yet, of anything that's happened before them. And the purpose of the Great Tribulation period is judgment. All right. It's not for the purifying of the church. It's to give Satan, if you will, his last go of things, his last hurrah, his last fling. You see, God is going to remove the church before this time of tribulation because of his amazing, infinite, merciful grace. If you're willing to accept his great grace, 
then you won't have to experience the great tribulation period, which again is his judgment. And the bulls of wrath, they are not what the believers are looking for. We are looking for, as Paul said, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, God and Savior. And if we will grow in love with him, we won't think about the judgments of the great tribulation as being terrifying because they won't be to us because we won't be there to see them. You don't have to be afraid to read the book of Revelation. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you won't be going through the great tribulation. But you do need to know what the unsaved will go through. That is, those who reject Jesus Christ. And they will hopefully, you know, when they see what's going to happen, they, they might, you know, hopefully uh, make you a fiery witness for Christ in these last difficult days. As you see what's going to happen as we study it, you know, hopefully you'll say, man, I, I, I don't want my husband, my wife, my children, my my friend, my cohort, I, I, my schoolmates, I don't want them to go through this. I need to let them know. I need to have an urgency. I need to be fired up about telling them about Jesus Christ. Somebody said this about D.L. Moody. They said in, in his day, D.L. Moody looked into the faces of more than any man who ever lived and that he reduced the population of hell by two million. Can you say how many people will miss hell because of you. Can you say how much of the population of hell will be reduced because of you and your witness to others about Jesus Christ? Before these angels here in chapter 15 start pouring out the bowls of wrath, some people might be thinking, will there be any believers who will be able to stand up against the Antichrist? Yes, there will. There will be those who will be enabled to stand against the Antichrist. First of all, we see here the preparation for the final judgment of the great judgment, the great tribulation in, verse, in chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. Look at verse 1 as John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. So in these seven last plagues, God's wrath will be complete. The seven last plagues will put an end to God's judgment against this Christ-rejecting world. Once this is over, Jesus will come back with his church. That's us. He's going to come back with us, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and his righteous government of God over the earth will begin. The sign itself consists of seven angels, it says here, who had seven plagues. These are the same ministering spirits spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, who care for and minister to God's people. They will assist God in bringing his wrath to a sinful world. The word plague here means to hit. It means a stroke or a wound. So the seven plagues aren't really diseases or outbreaks of a disease. They are a powerful, deadly blow, a series of powerful, deadly blows that will strike the world with deadly force and deadly consequences. These seven plagues, or the bold judgments, are the last and the worst plagues, the worst of the blows of God's judgment, because they're his final blows. These last plagues are like the ones before the trumpet and seal judgments, expressing the wrath of God. God's wrath goes all the way throughout the tribulation period, 
and doesn't cover just a certain amount of time at the very end. Being the last plagues suggests that the bowls come after the seals and trumpets in chronological order. So this huge and dreadful outpouring of God's final wrath, His judgment, is the grand finale, if you will, of the great day of the Father's and Jesus Christ's wrath. Now, wrath is a strong word. It describes rage. It describes fury or a passionate outbreak of anger. And God's anger must be made known against all unforgiven sin. Let's look at verses 2 and 4 now. John says, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. We shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name. Or I should say, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Here John saw the believers from the tribulation period who got victory over the beast and and his image and his mark. These are the believers who didn't save their lives. In other words, these are the believers who didn't take the easy way out. These are the believers who, who didn't take the mark of the beast or worship his image. They were enabled to make it through the tribulation period. Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, these people were saved because they didn't go along with the Antichrist program or Satan's system. They didn't take the mark of the beast. They were totally dependent and trusting on the Lord for all of their needs to get them through this terrible time. Some of them were put into prisons. Some of them were killed. But all of them practiced their faith and their patience. How much more should we, as believers today, show our faith and our patience? We have God's word. We have the Holy Scriptures. We, get, we, we can go to a true believing, a Bible-believing church. We have the Holy Spirit. We have fellowship. You see, the whole picture is a reminder of Israel after the Exodus. The nation of Israel had been delivered from Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And the Egyptian army had been destroyed at the Red Sea. And in their appreciation and thanksgiving to God, the Israelites stood by the Red Sea and they sang the song of Moses. And the tribulation saints that John saw here and heard standing by the the sea of glass and even back in chapter 4 in heaven, just like the Israelites stood by the Red Sea, they were singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It says here, the sea of glass. You saw them standing on a sea of glass. It's metaphorical since there is no sea in heaven. What John saw at the base of the throne was an infinite pavement of glass shining brilliantly like sparkling crystal. The song of Moses is found in Exodus 15, and there it says in verse 2, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. You see, when Israel came back from Babylonian captivity and set up their government and restored their temple worship again, they sang this same line at the dedication services. 
And in the future, when God will lead his people back to their land, Isaiah prophesied that they'll sing this song once again in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 12. The song of Moses is really an important song in the hymn book of the Jewish nation. And this should uh, this scene should give great assurance and endurance to Christians who are suffering in any age of the church. That you can be victorious over the world system. You don't have to give in. You don't have to take the mark of the beast. You don't have to give in to Satan and his temptations today. Because through Jesus Christ, we can do all things. All things. Through Jesus Christ, who is our deliverance. What Jesus Christ did on the cross has truly set us free from the power of sin provided by his shed blood of redemption. You see, that's why we have Christmas. God saw that we needed a Savior. So he sent a a deliverer to us. He sent us a Savior. And in the people's song, the tribulation saints praise God's works in addition to his ways. You see, those who are on the earth definitely won't be praising God for his works. And they'd never understand his ways. We read in Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 77, verses 8 through 13. His, is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? And I said, this is my fate. The Most High has turned his hand against me. But then, notice, notice the psalmist said, but then, you know, prior to that, he's feeling bummed. Has the door slammed the door in my face? Is his compassion gone? Has he forgotten me? He says, but then I recall all you have done for me, O Lord. He says, I remember your wonderful works of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. That's the problem. We forget about the past works of God that he's done for us. The psalmist said, they're constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works, O God. Your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? Of course, the answer is no. He said, you are the God of great wonders. Asaph, in that psalm, conquered all of his doubts by going back and remembering what God had done for him in the past. Because what God has done for us in the past, that's encouragement for what he'll do for us today and what he'll do for us in the future. You know, and I look back when, when, you know, when when Kathy got the news that she had breast cancer. The day after we got the news that she had breast cancer, which was on a Friday. That next day, Kathy was preaching at another church. You know, she could have stayed home. We all could have stayed home and sulked and oh, oh, me, oh, my, and, you know, but we didn't. She didn't. And while she was preaching at that church, I took the opportunity of, of, of taking that time and being at home with the Lord and seeking the Lord in prayer about the certainty of our days ahead. Because we just received news that was just, you know, one of those things. You start having those thoughts, you know, and, you know, she was she was teaching and, you know, and I, but I, I started having those thoughts. You know, the, the big what if. Those what if thoughts that when you keep thinking what the, what they keep going, getting darker and darker and darker and they get to those really dark places. Lord, is she going to die? You know, am I going to lose my wife? And I just began to ask the Lord, 
You know, don't take her home yet. And as I was praying, he began to remind me of our past, of all the marvelous things that he had done for us. In his still small voice, he reminded me. Joe, remember, I healed her from a golf ball-sized cyst on one of her ovaries. They were talking about her having to have a hysterectomy. We never have children. Pastor Xavier prayed for her, and God healed her. She went back to the doctor, and the doctor said, it's not there. It's gone. He said, remember, Joe, when I spared her from a misdiagnosed brain tumor? She went to the doctor, and they said she's had a brain tumor. And we were going, oh, my goodness, Lord, you know. Several days later, went back to the doctor. Said, I don't know why that doctor said that, but you don't have a brain tumor. Thank you, Lord. He said, I saved and healed your marriage when we were at our wit's ends and, and we were about to go our separate ways. And he brought us back and he healed our marriage. He said, remember, I spared her her life from that crash on the freeway when she fell asleep at the wheel. Four o'clock in the morning, she used to have to get up at three, drive me to L.A., and then she'd come back and then she'd ready to get ready to go to work. She fell asleep in, in, in the freeway and hit the guardrail and spun around. Nobody hit her. She wasn't seriously injured. He spared her life that night. He, 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 he gave us children when we thought we couldn't have children. You know, and then many of you know, two years ago, she had two heartaches in the same year, and he spared her. And he was saying, Joe, he says, I've done all of those things for you. That was just encouragement also for what we were going to go through now. This is just another, he said, this is just another event in your life, Joe, where I will demonstrate to you my greatness and my goodness. So as the psalmist said, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you all, but you will glorify me. Glorify him through the things that he has done for you in the past. Even when we got, even before we got into the hospital building to get the news that it was cancer, God began to speak to us. Because as we were walking up the steps, I looked up to the top of the building and in huge letters it said Providence. Providence. God saying, I got this. I got this. You see, God's works are great and they're wonderful and they're many and his ways are just and they're true. The tribulation saints here, they have no complaint about the way God allowed them to suffer. And it would save us a whole lot of grief and complaining if we would just acknowledge God's sovereignty and his promise, his providence, and we would submit to his will in the same way those great tribulation saints, saints did here, and we would do that all the time. That we would submit to whatever we're going through because it's God's providence. It's God's purpose in my life. The psalmist said in Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways, gracious in all of his works. Shall I, the judge of the earth, not do right? Scripture says he does all things well. Isaiah said he is a just God. He's too kind to, to, to hurt you and, he, and he's, too, uh, he's too wise to make any mistakes. The phrase king of saints in verse 3 can also be read king of ages. God is the eternal king, but he's also in charge of history. Nothing happens by accident or coincidence in your life or my life. 
And the singers here and singing Moses' song, the singers want to glorify God and they want to honor him. And verse 4 here is another expression of hope and expectation of the kingdom to come. It predicts the time when all nations, tongues, and tribes will worship the Lamb of God and they'll obey Him. This verse also announces that God's judgments are about to come. And at this point, the temple of the tabernacle is opened in heaven so the angels, the seven angels with the seven golden bowls, that they might begin what they are called to do. Look at verse 5 now. John says, After these things... I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So John says, now, after these things, the things that he just mentioned in the previous verses, after these things, he says, I looked. John tells us about something amazing and something extraordinary that he sees. But whatever it is, it catches his eye. It really grabs his attention, and it takes his attention away from the overcoming saints who were singing their praises before the throne of God. What John sees here is the bold judgments that will be coming in chapter 16. But first, he sees the angels that are going to carry out those judgments in chapter 16. And as John watched... The temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And he saw something like this back in chapter 11. The word temple refers to the holy of holies. The inner sanctuary where God dwelt. Emphasizing that God is the source of the plagues. The tabernacle was sometimes referred to as the tabernacle of testimony. Because the most important piece of furniture in it was the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. It was, the, it was named this because inside was the testimony, the two tablets of stone where God had written the Ten Commandments. Verse 6. <clears throat> and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests girded with, <clears throat> with golden bands. So as John watched the seven angels having the seven plagues, they came out of the temple. Because it was time now for God's sovereign righteous plan for the seven plagues representing his final deadly judgments to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. These seven angels will carry out God's plan. They were dressed in pure bright linen here. It speaks of clean and bright. The material represented their holiness and their purity. And that would be appropriate since they are glorious. They're holy and majestic beings. The angels were wearing around their chest, it said, golden bands or golden sashes. Verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So after after the seven angels came out of the inner sanctuary of God's heavenly temple... The seven angels received the seven plagues of God's judgment that were going to be poured out upon the earth. Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven golden uh, bowls full of God's wrath who lives forever and ever to the seven angels. Now, in the old King James Version, the the, the word is vials. It uses the word vials instead of bowls uh, for the containers that are holding the seven plagues. But a vial is a small glass bottle, so the word is misleading. A better translation is shallow saucer, and here's why. Chapter 16 says uh, to go and pour, all right? So it gives us the idea of a slow stream being poured out of like a little vial, a little pitcher. 
but it's really everything that's in the shallow saucer being poured out at one time. So God's wrath is not going to be poured out slowly through a little vial. It's going to be dumped on the earth all at once. It's going to be a severe blow on the earth, creating a flood of judgment, not just a trickling of judgment from a small vial, but an outpouring, a dumping of judgment from like an open saucer. Notice, too, these, these vials or this, these saucers, they're not filled with the love of God, but with God's wrath. It's very obvious that you couldn't help but notice the number seven. It's mentioned several times here. You often hear the number seven referred to as the number of perfection, which isn't totally correct. It's the number of completeness, and sometimes completeness is perfection. For example, when God created heaven and earth in six days and then he rested on the seventh day, not just because it was complete, but because it was perfect. But here in Revelation, the sequence of seven speaks of completion. God's complete judgment upon the earth. Verse 8. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. And because we're still dealing with the temple here, that should show us that the church is not involved. Neither the temple nor the tabernacle had anything to do with the church. But they give us wonderful pictures of Jesus Christ, which have spiritual applications for us this morning. But it doesn't mean that the church should, be, should build a temple or a tabernacle. Instead, this section here speaks of Israel. It speaks of a people who had a tabernacle and a temple. Now, a lot of people uh, uh, don't want to admit this truth, that God still has a plan and a purpose for Israel. A lot of people think that God is finished with Israel, but he's not. In reading the New Testament, you can see God is still totally involved with the people of Israel. The seven golden bowls represent the final part of the great tribulation period because a world has rejected the blood of Christ. And because they've rejected the blood of Christ, the saving blood of Christ, they have to bear the judgment for their sin. Now, this judgment isn't because of man's or Satan's hostility. This judgment is the direct action of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we saw the, the, the gentle Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. We've seen that before. Now we're seeing the wrath of the Lamb of God. See, His coming the first time was the gentle Lamb of God bringing salvation to the world. When He comes again, it is going to be the wrath of the Lamb of God bringing judgment upon the world. You know, you rarely think of a little lamb as being angry. Now, a lion is strong, and a lion can roar, and a lion can defend itself, but not a little lamb. When you see lambs, they don't have any type of defensive mechanism. They don't have you know, sharp horns or antlers. They don't have sharp teeth or claws. They're a meek and mild animal. But the wrath of the lamb, he is going to shock the world one day when he comes as judge. The prophets of the Old Testament used the figure of the cup of iniquity. And wrath filling up. And it spoke of God's patience in waiting for it to fill. Then when it's full, God is going to move in his judgment. 
And the seven angels with the seven golden bowls make it clear that the judgments of the bowls are coming from God. They're not the result of man's mistakes or Satan's hostility and hatred. These judgments are the direct action of God. Amos 3.6 says, If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? See, the Lord is claiming, I'm the one who's bringing this judgment. I'm the one who's pouring out this judgment upon the earth. Not only angels came out of the heavenly temple, but also smoke. And smoke is a symbol of the glory of God and his power. Smoke is a symbol of majesty. It also symbolized God's magnificent presence in the Old Testament or temple. <clears throat> this smoke also symbolizes God's wrath. So you see, no one was able to go into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. The glory cloud will stay in the heavenly temple until the earth is completely cleaned out and prepared for the king and his kingdom. So what's pictured here and described here sets up the background for the final perfect judgments that will be poured out in chapter 16. So in closing... Over 2,000 years ago, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ for our sins. Every sin ever committed, past, present, and future, was poured out upon Jesus Christ, God's wrath for the sins of mankind. It was poured out on him because of what he did for sinners in the future. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on sinners because of what they did to Jesus Christ. For thousands of years, God has waited patiently, waiting for anyone and all who are willing to receive Jesus Christ and his gift of salvation, patiently waiting because God does not want anyone to perish. Listen to Ezekiel 3.11. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't get any pleasure in seeing somebody die. It grieves his heart because he's made provisions for mankind through his son, Jesus Christ, through the cross. God has been merciful and he's been gracious beyond measure. But when you refuse his mercy, guess what? It brings judgment. By the time of the great tribulation, God pours out and, and God pours out the seven bowls of his final wrath on earth. Sinners will have been warned over and over and over again to repent and they will not be able to blame God ever for them going to hell. Never. They will have seen and they will have experienced so many horrifying and deadly judgments, which they will admit came from God. They began to admit it was God's wrath back in chapter six when they called out for the rocks and the and, and, and the mountains to fall on them because the wrath of the lamb has come. They will have seen and experienced some of the most horrifying things. They will also have heard the gospel message preached by the two witnesses back in chapter 11. They will also have heard the 144,000 Jewish evangelists witness the gospel. 
They will also have heard other redeemed Gentiles and Jews. They even will have heard the gospel from an, from a, a fly, an angel flying in the middle of heavens. We saw that back in chapter 8. God has done so much to tell people about the loving Savior, Jesus Christ, to save them. And yet, even though it's so hard to believe, but yet still true, people are still going to harden their hearts against God. And they're going to choose to go through distress, misery, and affliction. Solomon said in Proverbs 28, 14, he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. They will pay a terrible price for not listening to the Bible's warning. To repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. I mean, again, Jesus has done it all. There's nothing he can do, nothing more that he can do. It's it's our turn. It's your turn. It's now, what do I do with what Jesus has done for me? There's only two things I can do. I can reject it or I can receive it. Because there's no middle ground. There's nowhere I can go and, and be neutral. Not choosing Christ is not choosing Christ. You automatically have, have made your choice by rejecting Christ. Even though you don't, it means I believe in Christ and I believe. But again, believing is just acknowledging, uh, it's just a, a mental acknowledgement that, that Christ exists. But is there a relationship with Jesus? Is there evidence, is there fruit of a, of a relationship with Christ? Evidence of salvation. That's what God is looking for. And only Jesus Christ can give us that. It can't come any other way. No man can get into heaven without Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one will see the Father, get to the Father, except through me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love, your grace. Father, thank you for your wonderful works. Father, thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. For thousands of years, God, your gospel has gone out. The warning has gone out. And it's time for decisions. If you're here this morning and you've never made a decision for Christ, that is, you've never received him as your Lord and your Savior, this is your opportunity this morning. This time is for you. Don't be like those that harden their hearts. Don't be like those who think, I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. Being good isn't good enough. There will be a lot of good people in hell. 
And it's about that person that recognizes they're a sinner. And I need Christ. It's like the Pharisees who used to wear their priestly robes and would stand out on the corners to be looked at and ooed and awed at. They were the cream of the crop of the religious. They were the know-it-alls. They knew the law. They knew the ceremonies. They knew the procedures. And yet they missed the kingdom of God. Like the poor sinner who repented and pounded on his chest and said, Oh, Lord, I am a sinner. You see, that man, that religious man, and all of his knowledge and all of his, his religious garb, he missed the boat. He thought, I'm a good man. And said, oh, I, I'm so thankful I'm not like that man over there, like that sinner over there. And yet the one that said, Lord, forgive me, I am a sinner. That's the one that God recognized. Because the man recognized his sinful position and that only Christ could help him. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And if the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart and shown you your need for Christ, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.